0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in a chronological order of publication. And this week what I am doing, I am turning my attention back to Hulu's Castle Rock, which is not necessarily an adaptation of any of King's works, but um, an original creation inspired by the works of Stephen King, drawing upon the past of Stephen King and building off the history of the many decades of uh, all the time and all the years that Stephen King has put into his Most famous small town, which is Castle Rock. So, if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome, guys. Welcome to the Stephen King cast. You can check out all of my thoughts on the first episode of Castle Rock and the previous episode. And I'm just going to get right to it. I'm going to forego any listener emails or iTunes reviews. Although, if you do have any thoughts, on Castle Rock, any theories, um, your own analyses, what you have liked or disliked so far, what you want to see from future seasons of Castle Rock, uh, feel free to write into to Kingcast at yahoo.com. You know, any fan casting, um, because one of the joys of Castle Rock has been seeing Sissy Spacek um, in this, knowing that she was the, the OG Stephen King character with uh, when she played Carrie White, and most recently we have uh, Bill Skarsgård playing uh, the kid. As of right now, an unnamed character known as the kid, who you know, um, launched himself into the stratosphere last summer with his portrayal of Pennywise, the dancing clown, and many people had wondered if. He was going to be able to fill the the clown shoes that had been previously worn by Tim Curry, and it's one of those things, much like the way Heath Ledger was able to put his own stamp on the Joker when the Joker had, for decades, belonged to Jack Nicholson. And uh, he had done that, and so had Bill Skarsgård, and here we are. And so one of the joys of watching Castle Rock is seeing these actors who are better known for other Stephen King adaptations being able to play in the world of Stephen King. So if you have any thoughts about who else you would like to see, if you'd like to see Kathy Bates make her great return, I mean, that's a i mean that, that that one's a no-brainer i mean she has been um working with ryan murphy in horror anthology shows so there was no reason for her not to come back to uh to, to the world of stephen king to play dolores claiborne again who wouldn't want to see that that would be great um but there there's so many characters that i would like to see jamie sheridan be able to return i'd like to see um hey, let's get tom hanks why don't you call up Tom Hanks and see see if he if he wants to come back? But no, I mean there's there's Gary Sinise, um, you know Stephen Weber, uh, Tim Daly, and now I'm just thinking about the ABC t- TV miniseries. But I mean I I, I believe that these are all uh, actors that. Um, wouldn't mind, you know, come in, you know hopping aboard, and they're all actors that I would I would like to see. So I mean, if you have any thoughts on who you know what famous Stephen King actors, uh, then then write into Stephen King cast at yahoo.com. And if you have a couple minutes on your hands, an iTunes review would would really, really help me out. So um, that's all I'm going to say about that guys. I just want to get into episode two of Castle Rock. So they, I don't have a uh, Wikipedia summary to read from to build my analysis. Uh, So, as I did last week, I'm going to read the recap from Vulture, written by Brian Tallarico. And he writes, In a style that's perfect for a streaming service like Hulu, the second episode of this Stephen King-inspired series picks up exactly where the last hour ended as Officer Zaliski investigates the crazy things he has seen on the monitors at Shawshank Penitentiary. Of course, we kind of know before he does that it's all an illusion, and that there will be no bloody bodies in the halls of the prison, and that the kid will be safe in his cell. Who is this mysterious figure who can control perception, and what does he want? The dead and decapitated Warden Lacey narrates this King reference heavy episode and it would be cool if Terry O'Quinn narrated everything, yes please thank you, from Beyond the Grave. He speaks mysteriously of a plan and it ain't necessarily God's. He says that in Castle Rock every inch is stained with someone's sin. There have been suicide, murders, and enough strange activity for a TV series. And we see a young Lacey building the cell that will house the prisoner found after Lacey dies. Why did he build it? Lacey says, one day God answered. Henry arrives to speak to the warden's widow and basically sneak a look at the dead man's things. He finds prayers, uh, prayer cards, bills, and a folder of news clippings, including articles that reference the plots of the body, needful things, and Cujo. He finds Uh, old verse of the day calendars that have all stopped been stopped on the same page even at the hour of night the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized what does that mean the dead warden is clearly the jailer did he think saving the kid would save him and his wife as lacy's widow kicks henry out uh, he knows a really sturdy foreboding lock on the basement door could there be more kids down there When Henry goes to the warden's church, we meet Jackie Torrance. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, you really shouldn't be allowed to watch Castle Rock. The current pastor speaks of redemption in the flesh and how Lacey thought of the natural world as his church. Lacey is being presented and remembered as a good God-fearing man. Why did he have a prisoner in the closed part of Shawshank Penitentiary? It's the main question nagging at his predecessor as she drinks wine at the Hilton Augusta, and Alan Pangborn plops down in the seat next to her. He tells her a story about once pulling over Warden Lacey when he was a cop. Lacey told Alan that he had figured out what was wrong with Castle Rock and leaves her with a warning, don't let that fucking kid out. The new warden is so confused about what's going on at Shawshank, but she is going to get some answers from the kid. Working with her skeevy assistant, she moves the kid to a new cell with his cellmate who has swastikas, swastikas tattooed on his head. He seems nice. Of course, we know what will happen, and a few scenes later, it's the Nazi who ends up dead, his entire body riddled with cancer, after the kid warns him, you don't want to touch me. Before that happens, we learn a little bit more about Molly Strand. It turns out she was Henry Deaver's neighbor when she was young, and kind of sweetly obsessed with the cute boy across the street. She writes his name in her notebook and sees him get in a car late one night. Later, after Henry's father is found dead, a deputy comes to question a young Molly, who claims to know nothing about Henry's disappearance. The scene ends on a fascinating and strange beat as steam comes out of the young girl's mouth as if her room is freezing cold. What exactly are the extent of Molly's powers and what is her relationship to what happened to Henry? She tells her sister, played by the great Allison Tolman, that she has an undiagnosed psychic affliction, but what the heck does that mean? Meanwhile, Henry runs into Jackie again at a bar called the Mellow Tiger. She tells him how the city turned his disappearance and the death of his father into an urban legend, spreading the rumor that the young boy pushed his adoptive father off the bluff and ran away. She wants to see his feet to see if the story that he lost three toes to frostbite is true. Henry has another goal. He's trying to get to the bottom of who called him from Shawshank, and he lucks into Zaleski. Zal, Zal, I can't pronounce that name for the life of me. Um, the, the guard played by Noel Fisher. Noel Fisher. Um, Noel Fisher. Man, I'm striking out on all, all accords with this particular character. Entering the bar, sending him a note to meet later. Zaleski. Zalwiski? Zalweski. Zalweski. Henry goes home to find Alan digging up a dog in the backyard in an insanely on-the-nose Pet cemetery reference. Ruth thinks the local stray who was hit by a truck is still alive. It's a good scene for Glenn and Holland, and we see that Molly is still watching her neighbor from across the street. When will she finally talk to Henry? The officer and Henry stage an act of God to get the attorney to the prison, setting up the traveling church outside the penitentiary. As Henry stands near the fence, someone pushes the kid out the door so the attorney can finally meet his client. As a dog digs up Lacey's head, we learn that the narration we've been hearing has also been in the form of a letter to Alan. Has he passed on his obligation, his curse, his need to be the defender of Castle Rock, whatever that entails? Um... Okay, so I'm going to get into my thoughts on it. Um, And thank you, uh, Brian uh, Tallarico, for these uh, recaps because they're really helping out this podcast. So we pick up right where we left off with Noel Fisher watching the video feed as the kid makes a bloody escape. After hitting the alarm, he heads into the corridors to confront the source of unexpected slaughter. The action invokes a young knight heading off to slay a dragon. This isn't to say that he isn't afraid because he clearly is. But that's what bravery is, isn't it? It's not the absence of being afraid, but the choice to make the right decision in the face of being afraid. And this makes me like this character so much. What he and we, the audience, quickly learn is that there is no escape, there is no massacre, the kid is still in his cell, and everything that we thought we just saw was the result of the kid playing games with our young knight. After the credits, our first time seeing them in full, we have the now-deceased Dale Lacey narrating to us the history of the blood-soaked town. Terry O'Quinn, guys. Um, Just like Brian Tellerico said in his recap, I mean, he needs to do more narration work. Uh, You know, I know that Morgan Freeman gets all the cushy gigs, but seriously, Terry O'Quinn's voice is, you can just listen to it for hours. We learn that he built the cage in the abandoned section of the prison because God had told him to, and that's interesting. I want to um, I want to explore that more. Who, 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 someone manipulating him? Is it a God that is talking to him? Is it another force? Is it someone that is just playing games? What What is going on with with Lacey? And it will be sad and tragic if this character believed, um, much like another. Uh, television character that Terry O'Quinn played, but it would be sad if he had true conviction and belief in something, only to learn that he was a puppet of a malicious entity the entire time, and his, his belief was a cosmic joke. In the present, an adult Henry Deaver plays a visit to Dale Lacey's widow, played by Frances Conroy, who is helpful and kind, until she learned that he is Henry himself, blaming him for the death of his father and curses him for it. Between this scene and the preceding one, we learn about the religious nature of this family, especially Dale, who believes in the literal devil, and is a man chosen by God to cage the enemy. While in Dale's study, Henry takes the opportunity to begin to rifle through his papers in the hopes that he can find the identity to his mysterious client who lured him all the way back home. In the process, we get a number of Easter eggs, including references to Cujo, Frank Dodd, And my boy, Leland Gaunt. This, to me, guys, this is a pretty big Easter egg. Because I hadn't caught it the first time around. I saw the headline when I first watched the episode. I I just assumed that they were referring to Pop Merrill from the Sundog. Because a part of me was wondering if the events of Needful Things might not have happened in the continuity of this show. The apocalyptic showdown between Pangborn and the devil might be too much of a backstory for the Alan that appears in this show. So when I paused... Each newspaper clipping upon rewatch, I immediately noticed the red pen from Dale Lacey. Wondering what he highlighted, I inched closer to my screen until I realized that what he had circled on the page was a name, and that name was Leland Gaunt. Here's the text from the newspaper, by the way. After the explosive, all-consuming fire that ravaged downtown last week, officials are still looking for the whereabouts of oddity shop owner Leland Gaunt. Gaunt's oddity shop was one of the many stores in the downtown decimated Uh, the out of control fire which began after a series of explosions shook the area castle rockians are trying to pick up the pieces after the fire and i can't read the rest of the column we get another headline anonymous tip led to boys I can't read the rest there's a photo of train track so i assume that's referencing the body uh there's another one that says rabid dog tears through town clearly it's cujo and then in the drawers he finds a number of desk calendars all pointing to different days The only thing they have in common is the scripture, which reads, Even at the hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in this household were immediately baptized. He's then lectured by Mrs. Lacey, but not before eyeballing a massive lock on the basement door. Yet another mystery. We then meet the pastor of the town, a role once filled by Henry's father, a role currently operated by Ken Gosgrove from Mad Men. And not only are we introduced to him, but we're introduced to Jane Levy, who plays a character whose name is, wait for it, Jackie Torrance. Your mileage may vary uh, with that one, but I smirked. She perks right up when Henry enters the church. From the way in which she sits in the pew, her ankles crossed over the back of the pew in front of her, you can tell that her interest in Henry is going to be interesting. Back at the Shawshank, Noel Fisher confronts the kid and asks he if he had gotten out the night before. The conversation's one-sided, with Skarsgård continuing to play this character without any emotion or response whatsoever, and this is a joy to watch, especially in comparison to his more famous King portrayal, the now iconic Pennywise who is twitchy, smiley, gleefully evil. The fact that he's able to radiate so much menace with just a blank face and letting those large, intimidating eyes do the work for him, it's a a testament to the abilities of this young actor. We then catch up to Alan, who owns the next scene with the warden, when he sidles up next to her, orders a $6 Coors, tells a story of Dale Lacey trapping the devil, Warning her to leave the kid locked up inside, and then walks away without paying. It's such a boss moment, but let's let's unpack this a little bit. So this is a uh, an Alan Pangborn that does not seem to have escaped the um, the grind of life. This is a a character that uh, has lost his family, and if we are going by the continuity established by Stephen King, then he at some point has lost Polly, whether Polly has died or had left him. Um, she was his the the new love of his life, and it looked like, according to the Castle, the all the Castle Rock stories that came after Needful Things in reference, he and Polly got away. So as I talked about last week, I'm, I'm curious to see if this is going to be addressed and what happened to Polly, what happened to Alan after the conclusion of, of Needful Things. This seems to be an Alan that has accepted that there is great darkness in the world and seems very burnt out by it. Um, you know, I mean, to me, you know, what... I mean, do the events of Needful Things play into this? You know... After all, someone who watched the Sparrows drag a walking ghost of a man who never existed into the afterlife, and a soul-stealing immortal, Imp, corrupting his town a few years later, it would prime him for being ready to encounter other forms of evil and the supernatural. So, to me, it seems that when he tells the warden to keep the kid locked up, and he's been in on it, he seems... Like an Alan that has, like I said, accepted supernatural in this world and is gonna be a little bit more proactive. Um and it, it, it seems as though it's come at a cost because what if he's wrong? He's locked a kid up in a jail for all these years. So if he's wrong, that's horrible, Alan. Um now, with the fact that the newspaper clipping indicating that Leland Gaunt was missing, and we know that, Alan, that that Leland Gaunt goes to another town, but what if this kid is Leland Gaunt? You know, who might have taken a new form after he rode out of town, um, now weakened and vulnerable, you know, and he's beset upon by Dale Lacey. The wrath in Alan's voice when he says, don't let that fucking kid out, it could point to some familiarity with the stranger. What if the stranger wasn't a stranger at all to Alan, but his arch-enemy who had driven a stake through the town he had once sworn to protect? Anyway, the kid is then escorted to his cell, occupied by a much larger man, a white supremacist. And then we get some insight into Molly Strand, who, as a child, was obsessed with Henry. In the present, she meets up with her sister, played by Allison Tolman. This is incredible casting, guys. Um, and I, I, I guess... Um, This casting came about because of some tweeting that Melanie Linsky had done and Allison Tolman and the two of them just who had never met They were just tweeting back and forth with each other talking about how they wanted to play sisters and it just so happened that um, Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason knew that they had a sister That was written for this character and they were like, yeah, it's gotta be it's gotta be Allison Tolman So it's one of those things that it works out very well Um, And I kind of want a spinoff show just to watch these two um, you know, just to watch you know, it's more put together sister um bouncing off one that's a little bit more quirky and what's great about this scene we we learn so much about the relationship between these two, and we learn so much about this town as it exists and um Molly, um you know, w- what's good about this is that rather than creating a a a new stephen king story that is based on 1970s 1980s or 1990s stephen king sensibilities um or or stephen king uh traits that were shaped by the the world in which he was living as he wrote those uh shaw and thomason are writing this story based on the world in which we are all currently living and in new england uh, there's there's an opioid problem. Um, and it's it's hitting small towns and it's hitting rural towns and it's hitting towns that have been left behind. It's an issue. And so the, the fact that this is what she's doing, she is seeking out um, pills in order to, to get to the day, that is very authentic. As someone that's living in New England in 2018, uh, this is something that we see a lot of. Um, and also another thing that we see in New England and you know, elsewhere in, in the country, renovated mills that have taken on what shopping malls used to be when they, they first came out. Um, this, you know it, it, it's taking a bit of the town's culture and repurposing it for um, a, a new commercialized way of shopping and experiencing and, and dining. Um, there, There's a couple that are about a half an hour away from me. And my wife and I and and our kid, we can take our kid too because there's things for for her to do. And there, there's just a lot of different forms of entertainment. And I like the idea that, you know, Molly is looking into this in order to, uh, you know, she has the, the means to do it and she has a dream and a vision and you, you root for her, you know. I mean, you can look at it from her sister's side that, oh, we got you know crazy molly wants to do this At the same time crazy molly has a point uh, this is something that it could be good i don't know if this is the, the the right town for it because like the sister says this isn't great barrington this is fallujah um which is that's a depressing line but uh, her heart's in the right place back in the jail cell the white supremacist makes the wrong choice to get close to the kid who in his defense had warned the supremacist not to touch him Henry then heads to Castle Rock's destination spot, which constant readers will recognize, the Mellow Tiger, and to see if he can find some information about his mystery client when he's interrupted by Jane Levy, who viewers discover is a Castle Rock history buff. After learning the sordid truth behind Nan and her luncheonette, which was great, Jackie Torrance spills the beans that Castle Rock is no longer on the map. Through Jackie Torrance, we learn what the town thinks about Henry. Upon returning home Henry discovers digging up discovers Alan digging up a dead dog um, and this is the inverse of of pet cemetery um, rather than you know um, burying a dead animal in the hopes that the, the animal will stay dead um, Alan is digging up a dead animal to prove that it is it is still it's still dead and it's not come back from the dead and uh, this is a scene that you know I, Animal corpse uh, unearthing aside, is just a good moment between these two characters because it shows the resentment that uh, Henry has towards Alan. And I want to. I'm very interested to see where this lies. After all, Alan's the one that that found him and saved him. Is it because Alan had didn't believe that uh, Henry? Didn't know where he was. Is there something else? And clearly, he has. He he resents the fact that Alan has come into his mother's life, and he's rejecting that. Um, but you can also tell that maybe he's projecting onto Alan the, the the guilt that he feels for not being there for his mother when his mother had taken him, taken him in, and he's now left the the town. Because probably he doesn't want to deal with all of the, as we have seen from you know Dale's uh, widow and from Jane Levy, what the town thinks of him. He can't stay there. But at the same time, how can that not weigh on you? And so I can see that he is taking his frustrations out to some degree on Alan, who is taking it for the most part. But not without throwing out a couple barbs here and there in a gentle reminder sort of way about, uh, you know, for one, just... Not schooling, but when Henry, you know, asks about, you know, someone, uh, one of the doctors, Alan just responds almost flippantly that they go to a clinic in Boston as if the doctor that Henry thought they had seen hadn't been in their lives for a while and then the, the line about will you be busy in November, it gives them so much time to to plan knowing, knowing that Henry is is not going to be there. Henry is going to bail, but it's also showing that Alan is here for, for Ruth. He is here for her. He's digging up a dead animal for her to prove and, and make sure that she's okay. And he's driving down to Boston. That is, that is a hike. That is not, that is not an easy trip. That's, I mean, we're, talking about eight, nine hours, I would say, from where they are in Maine. So that that's it's not an easy trip for them to take. Um, so that, that I think that that scene, it, it, it tells you a lot. And then we get a flashback to 1991. A police officer arrives at Molly's house to see if he can get any information about where Henry might be. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say police officer? I meant to say, Norris Ridgwick arrives at Molly's house. Norris Ridgwick, guys. This was awesome, okay? Like... So this is now the second character um, that is from the Stephen King books. All right, we have seen, um, we've we've heard many references. Nan, um, we've seen newspaper clippings about the the body and Cujo, Needful Things, Leland Gaunt's name. Um, so all of that is great. Don't get me wrong, all that is great. But with Alan Pangborn first, and now later sheriff, the one that that steps into the Sheriff's shoes after Alan Norris Ridgwick, this is this is this is awesome. This is. Uh, you know Norris is a is is a gentle a gentle soul not entirely the the sharpest uh you know knife in the drawer but a a good man um and uh it was just great to see it was it was great to see him um you know doing what he he could to uh to to help out this investigation and I would like to see um, an adult Norris at some point, you know, sit down with with Alan and kind of reminisce. And, I mean, we're not going to see that. But uh, but that would be nice if they kind of go over the case um, together um, along with the I can't remember the name of the current sheriff. Um, and I wonder if, if we're going to see uh, the Castle Rock PD in its current form headed up by... <laughs> I can't remember. Um, I mean, I, I know that I could just look at it, but I just, I honestly can't remember. Um, I want to remember. But uh, I, I'm interested in that. Okay. And then um, when he leaves, we see that cold air is blowing out of Molly's mouth. Now, Norris had specifically stated that it was warm in the house. Um, so this makes it stand out and it establishes the, the psychic link between she and Henry. And then Henry and uh, Zaleski meet up to talk about the prisoner and henry unfortunately discovers that he's not going to get any lawful assistance from the young CEO. and what's good about this is that it, it shows the real financial troubles and realities that someone in his position is is going to um to face in 2018 there's just not a lot of options for him especially because we have an unincorporated town at this point everything is drying up it's not it, it, the soil is not getting uh, richer. It's getting stonier. So it, it's not as if he has a lot of options. He says that there's no Walmart. Um, I mean, in one of the most, I got to say that, in one of the most recent stories in the Bazaar of Bad Dreams uh, collection, there is a mention how there's a Walmart in Castle Rock. But that's just a nitpick. And um, Shaw and Thomason did the right decision by not hewing that closely to continuity because in moments like these the character needs to trump continuity we can't get too caught up in that i wanted to point it out but it doesn't bother me because we need a character who needs to feel trapped and he needs to have conflict and he needs to want to do the right thing but be unable to because as we have seen he's we've got a baby on the way and he needs to be able to support his family and clearly he does not like his job like, even when he goes out to the bar, he does not want to hang out with the other CEOs. He looks resentful, but he's bearing it because it's the right thing to do. Um, it, what I like about this show is that every episode has focused on a different character. Um, you know, so I, the, the, with the next episode, really focusing on Molly, and I'll be really interested to, to get into the life of Zaleski a little bit more. Um, and Ruth, um, and, and others. Are there other characters that we haven't seen yet that, that we're going to meet and be introduced to? I'd be very curious to, I just like the format of this show. Henry manages to sneak into the prison through Ken, uh, Cosgrove's choir, as we discover that the kid's white supremacist cellmate has died, and a quick autopsy reveals that's cancer. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in the Easter egg section. In the prison, Henry and Zaleski organize a quick, unauthorized meeting by pushing the kid into the yard while Henry stands on the other side of the fence. Ominously, as the kid steps into the sunlight, Terry O'Quinn's narration intones that God informed him to never let him see the light of day again. Uh Uh-oh. And we learned that all of O'Quinn's narration in this episode had been a letter written from him to Alan Pangborn, which concludes with, I fear for this place. I fear what's to come, Alan. But I also know Castle Rock has a defender, even in the dark of night. Um, This is a great recognition for Alan Pangborn's character, guys. Um, And for me, for someone that wanted more stories with Alan Pangborn, Bumping up against and 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 defending Castle Rock against the the forces of evil. This is a fulfillment of what I wanted Alan uh, Payingborn to be. Uh, so that line, I, I had a huge smile on my face when when I read that. Written by Terry O'Quinn. Another thing, I need at least one episode, please, please. Uh, those of you uh, the 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 all timers um, up on the, the the top of the tower, please. Give me an episode, a flashback episode, in which we see Terry O'Quinn and Scott Glenn um, planning and plotting and arguing and doing what they can to save this town. Uh, I need to see those two actors share screen time together. You know, it's one thing to to have one writing about. You know, writing to another, and it's it's one it's one thing for one of the actors to talk of the other actor, but I need these these two actors to be sharing screen time together. I need that to happen. Um, okay, so we have some Easter eggs here. So clearly, the first one is the the, the credits. Um, this is designed specifically for Stephen King fans uh, to just remind us that this is based on the works. Uh, well, not based on the works of Stephen King, but. Um, being built on the foundation of previous Stephen King stories. Um, In the beginning of the narration, uh, Cujo and uh, the Dead Zone and the body are all referenced um, very, very early on. There is also, and I can't take credit for this one, but there is a... uh, um, Plymouth Fury, um, that is uh, seen. I I wound up reading about that one, but um, the, the the car. I believe that the woman is driving in her garage and she has snaked the tube into the house to kill her husband. I believe that that's a Plymouth Fury. I think that's what they're talking about. Um, Jack Torrance, of course, is an Easter egg. That is, the, you know, the the, the 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 main character and uh, villain of The Shining. Um, who also happens to share the name with Jane Levy's character. Leland Gaunt is referenced. Um, and then I one of the Easter eggs I said I was going to get back to, I'm going to say The Green Mile. Um, it's not necessarily an Easter egg, but it kind of is. Um, that scene with the white supremacist, uh, this is a riff on John Coffey from The Green Mile. Because as you know, John Coffey was a um, prisoner in the Cold Mountain Penitentiary. And... Um, his ability was to cure people of their, um, their sicknesses. And one of the things that he could do was, was heal cancer at a cost to himself, but he could heal cancer. Um, instead we have a character that can, um, imbue someone else with cancer and kill them, which is the antithesis of John Coffey. Then we have Lord of the Flies, um, so, with *Lord of the Flies*, two things: one, um, there is a, a, a reference to Castle Rock in *Lord of the Flies*, which goes on to inspire the town itself. Um, but also, I want to, you know, give a shout out to *Hearts in Atlantis*, um, the, the 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 novella collection, which includes the the novella *Low Men in Yellow Coats*. Now, in uh, the the white supremacist is reading *Lord of the Flies*, and that book plays a significant visual um, image in Low Men in Yellow Coats. And on the wall of the cell is a peace sign which plays a very significant plot point in the follow-up novella in that collection, the titular Hearts in Atlantis. So that, to me, I I don't know if that was just coincidental, um, but it's definitely something that I noticed. Um, The Mellow Tiger Bar... This is Castle Rock's uh, resident dive bar. And then both Nan and her luncheonette get shout-outs here, which was fun. And like I said, Norris. Norris Ridgwick being now the, the second character to um, to make an appearance. And then we have Stephen Kingisms. Uh, we have characters following God's orders. Uh, Mother Abigail definitely comes to mind. And then we have uh, Castle Rock psychics. <clears throat> Molly Strand, uh, Johnny Smith- the dead zone. So guys, all in all, Castle Rock uh, is continuing to fire on all cylinders for me. I'm really enjoying it, and um, after episode two, we immediately just went into to episode three. And what I'm going to do now is review episode three by again reading uh, the vulture recap by Brian Talarico, so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. So. An episode heavy on development for Castle Rock's ace realtor Molly Strand provides a great showcase for Melanie Melanie Linsky, a phenomenal actress. She's been handed a juicy role here, one crafted from a classical Stephen King mold, and that's unclear exactly how we're supposed to feel about her. In the opening scenes, we learn that young Molly Strand murdered the injured father of Henry Deaver while his son was missing and presumed dead. Is she a cold-blooded killer, or did she do it to protect Henry? Something is definitely unusual about Molly Strand. We watch the 1991 version of her cross the street to Henry Deaver's house as his father lays in bed attached to a breathing machine. Molly, who walked barefoot in the snow, by the way, stares at him. She unhooks the tube and watches a religious man die. Why? Was Henry's father doing something evil that Molly saw or more like psychically felt and was just protecting her childhood crush? And did she know where Henry was when she did it? Back in the present day, Jackie Torrance is talking to Molly about being on the show Local Color the next day to promote a real estate project. After some chit-chat about the dire state of Castle Rock, there's a nice beat in which Molly seems to sense Henry about to come through the door just before he does. seems to be very casual. Maybe he doesn't know about the childhood crush. He clearly doesn't know about the murder. We see Molly hearing sound clips from the previous two episodes, including moments with Henry... She was nowhere near. She clearly has some remarkable powers, and Henry seems to amplify them. She even knows that Henry wants to sell the old Deaver place. After a flashback in which Molly invites Henry into her room to check out her Ramones and Violent Femme posters, we check in with the creepiest kid in Shawshank, eating his Wonder Bread and basically creeping everyone out. He starts glaring at Lacey's photo on the wall. Would it really still be there? adding to the theory that the warden kidnapped him. Officer Zaliski passes all this information on to Henry, who needs more information. Molly comes home to a wrecked house, drawers open, fridge destroyed, property ransacked with someone just looking for drugs. Whoever did it, they also knocked over the box um, of Henry Deaver's belongings in the basement, and Jackie notices. Her nosy friend will be the least of her problems soon. As Molly is practicing for her local color appearance, she discovers that she's out of drugs. That won't work. She goes to her main connection, but he's out. Grandma didn't come to town. So she finds her way to the very creepy Timberland Motor Court, a place that recalls children of the corn in that all of the adults are gone. As one of them makes clear, all the moms are out drinking and all the dads are at Shawshank. And so the kids are holding some mocked court in terrifying masks, a ceremony that ends with them yelling guilty at Molly. The judge takes her to a room where she finally gets to place her prescription order only for the cops to show up first. Coincidentally, Henry Deaver is at the Castle Rock police station Asking about the crime scene around the warden's car Henry is trying to figure out exactly how Lacey and the kid are connected But the cops close the case immediately As the local law says, suicide solves themselves He overhears that the real estate queen is in a cell and bails her out Although she's not exactly grateful She keeps trying to push Henry away Finally admitting that she feels things that other people are feeling She says that some people are louder than others Especially Henry He's the BG song that gets stuck in her head. She has one line that's particularly foreboding. Things happen when we're together, and can it can be overwhelming. Not taking any of Molly's psychic confession too seriously, Henry hails a cab to get her to local color on WBBV. Molly is made up and shoved into the air, onto the air where she looks like she might pass out. Instead of having a friendly appearance about real estate, she drops the bombshell about the young man stuck at Shawshank. It's public now. Molly says, I think Castle Rock is ready for a little change. Feels like that's coming real soon. Bad publicity isn't good for a new warden, so Porter calls in Henry Deaver and offers a settlement. The kid will get $300,000 but has to sign an NDA. Henry knows it's not good enough. They're going to get millions. But offering the settlement to his client will finally get them face-to-face. The kid seems to be getting creepier, and he doesn't exactly perk up when he meets Henry. Henry. He asks unsettling questions like has it begun and wonders how old Henry is. Does anyone else think that if Henry had asked the kid his age, he might have said something like 439 like he's a vampire? Most interestingly, he asks Henry if he hears it now, which is the same question we see Henry's father ask in a flashback just before the young man runs into the woods. Molly comes home to a disaster unsure if her house is even empty. She hears something upstairs, grabs a knife, climbs the stairs. She steps on a broken light bulb and moves slowly down the hall. She leaves an empty room and turns around to see a bloodied priest in bandages. She can't close the bathroom door as he screams, Behold, I will tell you a mystery. The apparition disappears. Okay. So we begin with a flashback to that fateful time in 1991, while Henry is still missing, young Molly Strand walks across the street, sneaks into the Deaver house, and unplugs the pastor from his life support. That was a twist. Until now, we thought that Molly was quirky, a little damaged from her supposed psychic abilities, but I don't think any of us expected her to be a murderer. What happened to the priest? Were his injuries inflicted upon, uh, were inflicted upon him by Molly in the first place, and this was her just finishing the job? Is she like other Stephen King children characters, punishers of evil? Meaning, is this priest not as uh, up and up as the townspeople believe? Or is Molly deranged and dangerous? Adult Molly has a dream of the priest who demands to know why she killed him. Based on this line of questioning, there's some insinuation that before his body was broken, he might have n- had needed saving. And that in surviving whatever happened, he was saved and therefore didn't need to have been killed. Who was he really? And what was he up to? He mentions a trumpet sounding and the dead rising. Yelp! Are we getting Castle Rock Zombies up in this joint? That would be interesting because uh, with the exception of... I can't remember the name of the the short story, but it was in um, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. King doesn't really do zombies. That's a zombie story. That's a classic sort of Romero zombie story. But we don't really get those. Um I mean the the slow mutants are very zombie like but not your traditional zombies. So if the dead are coming back that would be that would be cool. You know, Lord knows it's a there's a market for zombies on television. Molly chats with Jackie and in the conversation we learn of Molly's dream of updating one of the mills. The two of them prepare for Molly's big television moment and as Jackie drives away, a stillness comes over Molly's face in the seconds leading up to Henry walking through the door. As he tries and you know talks and tries to connect, we get the perspective of Molly, whose attention is cluttered with jumble thoughts and memories from his mind. This was a nice touch. Um, it's nothing too splashy, but it shows us why Molly needs her pills. In a flashback, we see young Molly and Henry, who seems to have been forced by his dad to burn a VHS tape. And then later in her room, Molly gets um, intimate, in a way, by revealing that she has been sharing his thoughts and experiences. Back at Shawshank, Zaleski and Boyd are tasked with keeping an eye on the kid, who gets lost in his thoughts when he discovers a framed photograph of Dale Lacey. I'm very interested in discovering the truth behind this relationship and what Lacey was really up to. Then, in a clandestine meeting, Henry and Zaleski try to figure out their next steps. It's peppered with a sprinkle of character moments that makes me just wish that this scene was longer and not confined to two cars facing each other. Like, just have these characters talk for a couple minutes. Andre Holland and Noel Fisher know how to bounce off a partner and to make a moment meaningful. I like this pairing of both character and of actor, so I'd like to see more of this. Just let them off the leash of plot and let two characters talk for a while. The older I get, the more interested I am in that. And don't get me wrong, I'm loving the Stephen King connectivity of the series. The hook is solid, and I'm digging this show. Um, but this isn't related to, to just Castle Rock. I just feel like a lot of shows are forced to skip over these these uh, opportunities. We're only three episodes in, for sure, so maybe there's room later on down the road where characters can just talk to each other. Um, you know, Off the top of my head, uh, True Detective comes to mind. You know, granted, a lot of the conversation was Rust Cole spewing existentialist nonsense, but you know, Twin Peaks. There's another one. Twin Peaks uh, recently did it to, to great effect. It allowed us these these small moments that stretched for a while. Fargo, um, I think, does that very, very well. And The West Wing. The West Wing was phenomenal at that. You know, and and the constant fate of the world, the free world, was always on the line in that show. You know, the characters were always a moment away from a global or a national catastrophe, and they had time to talk about things like, um, you know, the Butterball Hotline or three words that begin with the letters DW. You know, so I I would like to see more of that, not just in Castle Rock, but in, in most shows. Um, so I'm just hoping that later on this season we get some moments where we're able to take a breath, because that's the strength of Stephen King, right, is his ability to, to craft characters in a believable setting. And what's believable is when you have characters just talking about life and talking about themselves and... So just have characters kind of take a deep breath and, you know, sit back and relax and just talk, that's something I want to see. Molly returns home to discover that her home has been vandalized. You know, thankfully, Jane Levy is there to help provide some comedic relief. Now, I could watch Jane Levy's facial expressions all day long, by the way, and I want an episode, two episodes, three. For the rest of the season, I just want more Jane Levy. Afterwards, Molly starts to mentally prepare for her big television debut and starts to feel the onslaught of memories and whatever psychic effects she suffers from. Unfortunately, she's out of her pills, so she goes to her dealers, the teenagers, and this is what I'm talking about, all right? Um, Sam and Dustin make this moment count. It's not just an adult woman buying pills off a couple of druggie teens. The interplay here makes this worthwhile. One of them comments on her yellow jacket. How many minions did you have to kill, he asks. And without blinking an eye, she fires back six and continues you know, trying to, to get information out of them. We get another flashback to young Molly and Henry. We see, <clears throat> objectively, the psychic effect at work. Across the street, he burns his finger, and in her room, she feels it. She, through her mind, sees Henry and his father in the woods at night. Where they are, and why is the priest talking, um, taking Henry there at that hour? Do you hear it, he asks. This is yet another mystery that we have to unravel. Meanwhile, Molly follows her supplier's advice to head to another dealer, whereupon she finds a very young girl playing by herself, unsupervised, at night. She enters the building and discovers a collection of kids, all wearing masks, playing a creepy-ass imaginary sort of court trial. The masks are terrifying, guys. This is creepy, but it's based on the character beat provided by one of the kids that all of their fathers are in Shawshank. This isn't a supernatural moment. It isn't evil. It's ultimately just a bunch of lonely, lost kids playing out the only reality they know. It just happens to be warped and soured by the environment in which they find themselves currently living. <clears throat> as Henry is at the station trying to get as much information about the warren's death he overhears that molly is in the jail based on the fact that the cops had showed up to the kids courtroom trial busting the drug dealer Derek and discovering molly buying drugs at the same time a nice little touch is that when we see molly in her cell the cellmate is wearing molly's signature yellow jacket it's not touched upon and i love the decision to just let it speak for itself Henry bailing her out allows the two of them to be able to spend some time together and breathe as characters. It allows for some natural humor and history to grow between them. And Molly explains her condition, the description helping the audience understand her plight, using a catchy song getting stuck in your head as an example. In the short time we've known her, Melanie Linsky has done an amazing job at creating a fleshed-out character. In the wrong hands... Molly would come across as too quirky or too pathetic. In Melanie's hands, she's sympathetic, lovable, and sad. In this scene where she's admitting her condition to Henry and his role in her condition, you can see how through the perspective of an everyday normal person, she sounds like a lunatic, some sort of stalker. But knowing what we know about her, she's simply telling the truth. And the truth is often something that is hard to tell. In the time that we've known her... Uh, she's been scolded by her more put-together sister. She's been seen buying drugs off teens, arrested and snooping on her neighbor. And yet, when viewed through a different perspective, you could argue that she's the bravest character this show has to offer. Because she's someone who completely understands who she is. Um, she won't lie about it and attempts to make the best of her situation. The scene is sweet. Henry jumps into hero mode to help out her his old friend talking to the cop to release her car and running into the station with her to make sure she's ready for her big TV moment. This is a hard moment. We've been seeing the thoughts of others cloud her mind, use up all of her attention, and the muffled, jumbled effect that they have used has been very effective. So when it's her moment, it's tense. Is she going to get through this? Truth be told, um, her desire to convert a mill into an economic hub is exactly the right thought in 2018. If she has the means to do so, she should. We should be rooting for her. It's what a struggling town needs, and it's a trendy thing to do. So when she is granted the opportunity to sell her vision and she begins to choke, it's heartbreaking. She puts her sunglasses on to try and help, and rather than simply talking about her plan, she, uh, having read Henry's thoughts, begins to talk about the kid being stuck in Shawshank without due process. The decision causes Henry to receive a phone call from the new warden at Shawshank who attempts to settle the impending lawsuit with $300,000, but Henry, being a man of principle, is not taking the bait. It's framed, by the way, with a reference to an old 80s head and shoulders commercial, Um, and all of this leads to the first face-off between the kid and Henry Deaver. Henry shows his brilliance here by telling the kid to continue to keep his mouth shut about his real name. No name, he argues, no charge, no crime. As Henry laid out the next steps to the plan, I couldn't help but think of a young Morgan Freeman. There was just something about the cadence of his voice, uh, just something about the inflection invoked Morgan Freeman to me, I mean, which made perfect sense with this being Shawshank Prison. Now, whatever connection the kid has with Henry has to do with Henry's father and the disappearance in the woods as the kid asks him the same question his father had asked him back in 1991. Do you hear it now? Hear what now? Is it the same horrific noise that Alan Pangborn heard in the second before Henry appeared on the ice? That sound that I thought sounded like the Wendigo from Pet Sematary? Could it be a thinny? Where the fabric between worlds is thin? Or is it something else entirely? Of course we're not going to get an answer tonight, and we conclude with Molly Strand returning home from the station. As soon as as she enters, she hears a noise in the house, which turns out to be the gauze-covered undead priest she'd killed all those years before. And conclusion. So, we get into the Easter eggs, uh, the first of which is a gazebo. So Molly wants to put in a gazebo, which makes sense because the last gazebo the town had, uh, which figured prominently in the Dead Zone, blew up in Needful Things. Then we have Warden Norton, uh, who is... Uh, it, there's photographs in the prison and uh, Warden Norton's uh, is next to Terry Quinn's photo as um, as Dale Lacey. Now, this is not just a photograph of Ward Norton, but a photograph of Bob Gunton as Ward Norton uh, from the Shawshank uh, Redemption. And then Children of the Corn, um, as uh, mentioned in other places, the, the whole uh, childhood courtroom sequence, It, I mean, these are not the Children of the Corn, but it's definitely invocative of the Children of the Corn. And then we have Stephen Kingisms. isms uh, The evil priest. Um, this is not the first time we have seen an evil priest in the works of Stephen King. The uh, cycle of the werewolf comes to mind. Um, the bandaged faces of both the priest and the uh, parishioners felt very George Stark to me. Uh, corrupted town leaders. So the... Um, the priest himself is supposed to be someone you can trust and believe in. And the fact that he's the villain, it's the corruption of of the institutions that we have in place. This is not the first time the things that we have been able to trust in Castle Rock have turned out to be um, corrupted and dangerous. Of course, another example is the, the police through Frank Dodd um, in the Dead Zone. And then we have... Accessories to assist with controlling psychic abilities. So I had already mentioned um, that uh, Molly Strand, um, you know, fulfills a Castle Rock psychic ability once held by Johnny Smith. But similarly, she wears her glasses to help tamper her psychic abilities. Similarly. Johnny Smith used gloves to tamper his psychic abilities. So with that, guys, I am finished with my review of the second and third episodes from Hulu's Castle Rock, which I am enjoying immensely. It's it's a lot of fun, um, and I'm looking forward to, to Wednesday to dive into episode four. So if you haven't done so already, please check out this show, because if you are a fan of Stephen King, then you're you're really, really going to like it. Okay, guys, if you have any thoughts, please feel free to write in at StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com, or you can leave a review on iTunes, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.